Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. There's no doubt that workplace well-being is a top priority for today's workforce. The Great Resignation is a clear indication that many people are no longer willing to tolerate jobs that leave them unhappy and in a constant state of stress and fatigue. But I've noticed that the current conversations around workplace well-being often overlook the C-suite and how they're impacted and how that can impact an entire organization. So we reached out to Dan Schwabel at Workplace Intelligence, and together we conducted a marketplace survey of employees and executives to better understand how C-suite leaders can improve both their employees and their own well-being. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Well-Being Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dan Schwabel. Dan's a New York Times bestselling author and managing partner of Workplace Intelligence. He's also a workplace researcher, global keynote speaker, podcast host, and career expert. Dan, welcome to the show. So happy to be here with you, Jen. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, a topic I know that we are both passionate about. Um, And we worked on this marketplace survey together to specifically explore the C-suite's role in organizational well-being. So for you, and I think we have a similar point of view, but what do you think is the most surprising finding uncovered in this survey? And you can have more than one. (laughs) Yeah, this is actually very tough for me, Jen, because it's this is the 62nd study I've done in 10 years. So I just feel like I'm so deep in this space that, you know, it's I've kind of moved from something that's surprising about outcomes to more of like validation of like, oh, finally, there's Mm -hmm. we have a stat that proves what we're trying to get at and communicate to other people so that they can make positive changes in their workplace and professional and personal life. And I think that's what makes this survey unique and special is we interviewed the C-suite and uh, employees to get both perspectives. That's why I believe, and I think you agree too, that's why it's kind of caught on fire and it raises it to the highest level so we can have these larger conversations about how do we improve work for everyone because personal and professional lives are so intertwined. So what I would say that I thought was interesting and, and further validated what we probably both believe is that there's a disconnect between how employees are feeling and handling, you know, the current time at work versus how the C-suite thinks that employees are doing. Um, so, for instance, 68% of employees and 81% of the C-suite say that improving their well-being is more important than advancing their career. I thought that was really cool and interesting mm-hmm. because we are seeing that people are have been prioritizing things that might've been an oversight years ago, right? Because I think COVID, you know, brought a lot of things to the forefront, brought a lot of issues that people are having personally and professionally, because it's inescapable, especially if you're working from home, you kind of feel that. And because I think globally, 
a lot of people experience great pain over the past two years. And yeah. so I think that, that that's why that, you know, safety, security, health, well-being, these things really got pushed to the top of what people are looking for in a job. And then the other thing is only 56% of employees think their company's executives care about their well-being, while 91% of the C-suite think that em employees believe they care about it. So that's kind of like, it's yeah. sad <laughs> that there is this level of disconnect. But I, I, I would wager that even though remote work is good in many ways, one of the things is it can tamper levels of empathies and, and make people feel a little bit more disconnected sometimes. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think what was fascinating about that stat and, you know, I think Ariana pointed this out when she, when she shared about our survey is, and we found this too. I mean, many in the C-suite are struggling themselves, right? And so they might not be verbalizing it or vocalizing it because of the roles that they're in leading an organization, but it's really hard to understand how others are doing if you yourself aren't doing well. So your, you know, your barometer or your perspective on that is, is, is skewed from the start because you're not really looking at it from a place of thriving. And I think when you're so deep into your work and you have so many responsibilities, you can sometimes not pay attention to the issues you're actually experiencing personally and professionally. <laughs> you know, yeah. sometimes it does have to be raised to the attention. So I think even this study, when leaders see the results and they read these, you know, all the different articles where it got covered, I think it's kind of a, wait a second, maybe I'm not doing so great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I mean, there there is kind of a, a myth around. I mean, I guess it's you know, is it it is it a myth or is it is it a fact? I guess you're kind of saying um, that it that it's pretty you know that it you know that leaders don't deal with well being challenges. And I guess you know we could go a couple of ways on that, right? Is it is it their own well being challenges that they kind of can you know continually push to the side to focus on work and their organization, or is it you know, that C-suite leaders kind of historically haven't been, you know, outside of HR, haven't really had to carry the responsibility of, of well-being challenges within their workforce, or is it both? <laughs> no, I think what this survey addresses is that the majority of C-suite thinks it is their responsibility and is going to invest more in this area. So there is hope in that regard. But I do think that there is this perception and stereotype that, oh, if you're an executive, if, especially if you're in the C-suite, you're doing okay, right? You're making a lot of money. But I think people overlook the fact that, you know, it's more responsibility, more money, more problems, right? And so once you're at the top, it's not like you're getting paid for the fun of it, right? Like you're doing a lot more work. In fact, you're more likely to work in, on nights and weekends if you're in the C-suite, right? Because especially if you're dealing with customers, you know, if you're the head of sales, it's, you know, and you hear from a customer that's paying you a lot of money, like you're probably going to be on call for that. And so I think even in a remote workplace, there is that ongoing pressure that they feel. And because they're role models, because, you know, a lot of the C-suite, the, they're, you know, shepherding a lot of these policies that, you know, kind of, are created in HR, uh, that can affect employees as well. Yeah. And so, I mean, in our survey, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, kind of more insightful um, uh, statistics that came out of it, or, um, you know, um, one of, you know, the insights that came out of it was that, 
you know, 69, almost 70% of the C-suite would strongly consider, you know, leaving their current role for one, you know, for an organization that, or a role that provides them better well-being. And to your point, I think that's surprising to most. And I think the reactions that I've heard is, well, (laughs) you know, the C-suite is typically responsible for these types of things. So if they are, are feeling this way, then are the rest of us doomed? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I thought that was uh, obviously our headline stat was really fascinating. And and especially in a good economy, if you're given more options, even at the C-suite or executive level, you're probably going to be a harsher critic on your job, right? You're going to be like, oh, there there needs to be something better than me th- than what I'm, I'm currently situated in. But if you know, you're in a recession, maybe not as much. And in, especially in 2020, it wasn't just a COVID pandemic, but it was a, an, a recession, meaning fewer options from a right. career mobility standpoint. And that's part of what we found in the study too, is that had a lingering impact on people. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, also what surprised me, I think the most about about that stat because I mean, you know, C-suite leaders do move around. It's not, you know, that's not something that doesn't happen. Um, it actually happens quite often. I think we just don't pay attention to it as much. But for me, I think what was most interesting or insightful is that the reason is for better well-being as opposed to, you know, for different experience, for a larger company, for more pay. Um, I, I, I don't know, cause we didn't ask this question specifically, but I think that it's really fascinating that the reason be, is, you know, is, is because of, you know, they're seeking better well-being, And we know that that is a kind of a, a huge driver in, um, the great resignation, probably more so than many. I mean, I think there's many drivers of the great resignation, but people looking for, you know, a better, a better way or working, looking for an organization that, you know, does care about their well-being or provides them, you know, better well-being either through, you know, flexibility or autonomy or kind of other things that we know um, are important. But I, you know, I, I never thought that would be a reason that the C-suite would be leaving. I always thought that the C-suite would leave for other reasons. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about too, with just seeing these results and thinking about and pondering is, you assume that if you're an executive and you're working remote and you're struggling with your mental and physical health because of work, because we found that this is stemming from the work they're doing, you assume that this your spouse might have a say <laughs> in you staying with your company too, right? There are other influences and because you're working remote, there's they're literally seeing you not mm-hmm. being healthy, right? As, I mean, and you're probably vocal about that and they're probably influencing you to state your company or not saying, Oh, well, you might want to find something else because this is just not working for not just you, but for the family. So, so why, I guess in your mind, you know, so I I think that, you know, progress is being made and you and I have talked about this. I mean, there's a lot more conversation about this topic and a lot more recognition at the C-suite level, um, that this, you know, that well-being is important, that it's a strategic priority, that organizations and leaders need to do more. But I think we both agree that the the, the action around this is is a bit lagging. Um, why is that? Well, I didn't even know that this was 
as big of a deal as it was until I interviewed you and various other chief well-being officers back mm-hmm. a long time ago, like mm-hmm. in 2020, right? That, yeah. And so when that happened, I'm like, wait a second, like this is this is already starting to get prioritized. And I need, and then fast forward to where we are today, and I think what it comes down to is the underlying issues aren't being addressed, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's very difficult because we do have this level of uncertainty of, okay, in the next few months, you know, people are going to fully go back to the office. Is it going to be still maybe hybrid? You know, what is work going to constantly look like because the state of the world's changing? Like, are we going to go back into a COVID spike in winter again? And how how is that going to affect everyone? And so I think that there are, you know, policies and, you know, behaviors that need to be changed. You talk a lot. I mean, we, we just talked in LinkedIn Live and and I think you made a really good point about this is about a behavior change. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to happen in five minutes, but I think it's a C-suite's responsibility, like they think in the study, that they're, they're going to be the change that they want to see in their organization. Yeah. And, and, I, and I know that you and I, you know, also kind of talked about, but, you know, this disconnect um, between the workforce or employees and the C-suite, like, I guess, you know, if the C-suite is feeling it and they know that it's an issue and the workforce and employees have been very vocal, either, you know, through the great resignation or otherwise, even if they stayed at an organization. So, why? I mean, it, it's surprising to me that this disconnect kind of still exists between the C-suite and the workforce. And I guess why, you know, what what can leaders do about that or what or vice versa? Like, what can the workforce do about it? Like, how do this how do we need to bring this together? Yeah, it can't just be surveys. I think it needs to be these larger conversations. Hopefully we're we're sparking some of that as well. But yeah, I think what tends to happen at work is, oh, we should take care of this. Oh, this is important. It's affecting our lives. It's affecting, you know, the people we work with, but we still have to, you know, finish this project, right? So a lot of the things that need to be addressed kind of get tucked away, even though they affect people to continue to prioritize big work tasks. So... Yeah. I mean, so what do we do? Like, how do we change that? (laughs) Well, I think it needs to be built into a work day. You know, I think it's not only these conversations that have to happen, but it's, you know, real programs that people adhere to, behaviors that are changed from the C-suite down. And over time, you know, you assume that culture within that organization will change if all those things happen. Easier said than done, of course. Yeah. And so, I mean, I know you and I, I mean, we talked about this before. I know you talk about this regularly and so do I, you know, you know, we've been talking kind of a lot about the C-suite and the rest of the workforce, but, you know, middle managers, or I don't even like to call them that, but like people leaders, you know, the people that are leading the teams within an organization that are actually getting the work done day to day, you know, I think those are, those are some of the hardest roles in an organization because you kind of get hit from all sides. And so how do we bring those leaders into the conversation, into the action? Um, Because to me, I think they're pivotal in helping to close that gap. 
Yeah, I think it starts with the C-suite. And then I think between the C-suite exhibiting the behaviors and being committed and HR forming the policies that kind of mirror that, then I think it really comes down to these conversations that have uh, that need to be had between middle management and workers, right? I think because each the thing the the complication is that there's no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Every company is different depending on geography, you know, within an organization, business function, uh, you know, where people are working, all these different things. And so I think that it does it is these ongoing conversations that managers and their employees have with each other to try and make it work and tweak tweak their communication, tweak how they operate in order to make work more manageable and healthier. And I mean, how do you feel about, and I think this is what you're saying, but having, you know, having people that are doing the work actually make the recommendations on how to redesign work to make it better. And there, there is where I think everything is going to go. I think everything is going to be more personalized and customized moving forward because everyone is different. Even if they're if even if we bundle people with gender and age and generation and geography, at the end of the day, everyone's different in their own way mm-hmm. and has different needs in a different way they work. You know, this person likes to work at night versus in the morning. You know, they like they're better at being independent versus in a group. I don't know. Everyone's very everyone's different in their own way. And I think that needs to be captured in these conversations. And, and uh, that's why even if there's policies and programs at a high level, I think individually these conversations and the relationship managers have with their employees is, is critical to making it work for those specific individuals. So, I mean, when you say that, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, this is a very, you know, yes, it's behaviors, but it's also... I mean, this is a very different leadership skill set. And I know there's a lot out there that you can read about, you know, I mean, one of the the struggles with hybrid is that, you know, many people are struggling with, you know, how do I lead a hybrid team or how do I lead in a hybrid environment? But, you know, this very personalized, individualized um, way of working that you're talking about, I think requires a completely different and new set of leadership skill sets. So it's not just behaviors, but it's kind of mindset, but it's also what we have looked for and valued in what makes a good leader. And I think one of the things is adaptability. I remember mm-hmm. one of my early studies was around what are the top most important leadership skills. It was, uh, it was actually from my second book, Promote Yourself, about you know how to get ahead in your career and eventually get into leadership positions. So we did a survey about what managers are looking for when promoting and adaptability was was very low on the list. Whereas I think today, even if people don't admit that adaptability should be higher on the list, I think for sure in today's unpredictable world where things are constantly moving, where you know maybe you just hired someone for your team and their you know their work preferences are different than the last two employees you hired you're going to have to adapt to that as well. And they're going to have to adapt to your management style. So I think that it's kind of a fluid workplace that we're in. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in our survey, on our study, we we saw some of these, you know, changes around, um, you know, the, the way, you know, generational, the generational differences and kind of the way that 
leaders um, are prioritizing well-being, their beliefs in kind of the importance of well-being or their role specific to um, organizational well-being. And we saw some pretty big differences, but, you know, with, with, you know, Gen Z and, and millennial leaders versus, you know, prior generations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that really stood out to me. And as someone, my first, I believe it was my first like eight to 12 studies was heavily focused on generations because I went from in my career, personal branding to generations, especially millennials in the workplace, because I was, you know, I'm a millennial, uh, to more of like future of work. So what I find interesting and that kind of mimics some of the data I saw early on is that young leaders in this study found uh, young leaders focus more on well-being benefits or health savvier or report being health savvier are transparent about their well-being and have helped their employees disconnect more than older leaders. So I thought that was really interesting that this is self-reported. So it's, you know, it's hard to say what actually happens versus what's what they're reporting. But I do think that there, especially with younger generations growing up now with their use of technology and their general awareness in terms of access to information, they're probably more aware that this is a problem versus people who have been in the workforce for like, you know, 30 years that are probably a little bit more numb to it. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say with the the younger leaders, it, it's probably a refle- reflection of their own experiences too in the workplace and what they want to you know, what they're passionate about changing because of those experiences. And I would say with, you know, I mean, as, as a, I'm, I'm not a millennial or Gen Z, um, (laughs) but I would say also, I mean, I, I do think that while there is, you know, more responsibility, the more you grow within an organization, you tend to, you know, feel, um, more empowered to, um, make, decisions to to fit your life right like you you don't feel like you always have to ask permission you have kind of that flexibility or autonomy and so it doesn't mean that the workload or what i do or what i'm responsible for gets any less in fact sometimes it's more but the way that i manage it um i'm able to do it in a way that works for me which i think with you know with younger people within an organization they don't always feel that level of autonomy and empowerment yeah i mean at a high level i think and i'm not sure if you agree but chief well-being officer that title should almost be shared with everyone in the c-suite it actually you could even argue that everyone in a company should have that title in a way I, I wrote an article how to be this how to be the chief well-being officer of your own life. <laughs> no, it's true though. I yeah. think everyone needs to take this seriously, right? And I, obviously, people are like living longer, but it's not like we don't have a lot of diseases. It's not like people don't suffer from burnout. Like, and we're a little bit more aware of it, right? Because of this study, because of, you know various examples we read about in the in the news. Um, but I think there is hope. I think that that's part of what we found with younger generations is this, this is something that's being taken seriously. And, you know, if we survey in another, what, 10 years or so to see if they are having this impact or if they feel the same way, or if there's, if they've had so much work experience that they've settled in and and they're not focusing on it anymore like that. So that's always what's interesting about serving age groups is, it's almost like uh, I remember the Harvard Grant study. They collected data for seventy-five years, yeah. and that, that's how you really can it can know behavior change, right? But okay, uh, but, Dan, I think we need to commit to you know collecting data for at least <laughs> ten years. 
But I think the other the other things that I, I thought were really interesting about the study, actually, kind of going back to your earlier question, was you know this idea of transparency and publishing. You know how that we this, yeah. more companies are publishing diversity data. You know, a lot of tech companies, especially, but. Uh, I think that people are going to be publishing more of well-being or health data, right? Because, you know, because in general, uh, healthcare and health data is a little bit more, you know, accessible than ever before. Like with these, you know, apps, I use an app with my hospital and doctor and like we, you know, telehealth, there's a lot of those trends that are happening as well. But I do think that because health and healthcare are such at the top of people's minds and how they're evaluating companies, that this type of data and how companies are evaluated as it relates to the health and well-being of their employees will continue to become more important. And I think that, and we, we talked about this too on, on, on LinkedIn, is you know, with the publication of diversity data and more around that and you know, companies requiring certain percentages or committing to certain percentages of, of different minority groups in the executive level, I think that that was a huge step in pushing that forward in a positive way. And I think that also opens the gate up for more of these well-being conversations and data to be published as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, as you know, that's a, that is a area that I'm uh, incredibly passionate about. I think it's really, really important. Um, you, and I mean, I, I, and I, we talked about, you know, it kind of following in the footsteps of DEI, but also there's some precedence with, with, you know, with ESG um, and, you know, some of those metrics that are in ESG kind of being incomplete in terms of, you know, giving the full picture of, of how the workforce is doing. But I think the challenge there beyond just health data is how do you actually get to what are the appropriate metrics, right? And how do we get to kind of some standardization around these types of metrics, you know, and looking at what does thriving look like in the workplace, um, you know, beyond just, you know, beyond just what we can gather from, you know, health-related data, are there other metrics? Um, and and productivity is definitely not one of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I'm super interested in that. And I think it's an incredibly important. And I, for one, think that, that that's a trend that I could wholeheartedly get behind and will get behind. Yeah, that was one of my big conclusions since 2020 is, you know, with remote work, especially people are working more hours mm-hmm. in exchange for flexibility. And a lot of them who had never worked remote before, and even some that did, it's the lines between personal and professional are blurred. You know, it's hard to set boundaries, especially in the beginning. And therefore you're kind of can feel like you're always working and, and, and work kind of bleeds into your personal life more. And while that increases productivity, which you could say is very good for organizations and potentially that person's career, the drawback is that they can be burned out. And with that burnout, it cause it can cause turnover. So while in the beginning it might seem great, it actually long term you could lose talent and it could cost you more. And I've always been interested in this, like the cycle of burnout. It's like, yeah. well, they're working really hard, but they're burning out. Then they're unhappy, and then they leave, and then you have to hire a replacement, and you can lose good talent that way. So, so uh, I think productivity is good within reason. Yeah. Well, and I think we just need to, the understanding that working longer hours doesn't actually mean that you're more productive. It just means you're working longer hours. (laughs) 
it might actually mean that you're less productive. Um, you know, which I, I think that remains to be seen. I, you, you've probably followed some of the four day work week studies, right? Uh, I did actually, yeah. actually fun fact is I think I did the first four day work week oh, study really? in okay. 2018. What, what did it, you conclude from that and how has it okay, changed? Okay. Okay. So actually, so my favorite survey question of my career <laughs> is, uh, so with pay being consistent, how many days a week would you work? And one of the response, one of the responses was zero. And only 2% of responses globally chose zero. So, you know, work, not working and getting paid the same amount as working, you know, five days a week. And, uh, but the most popular was four days. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what's really interesting about the four day work week discussion is it seems interesting. When you say it, it's like, you know, people are like, oh, that's really great. Does but then in practice, but in practice, the issue with it is not only is it like, you know, hard to standardize, not only like, you know, you got to agree on the right day, but really the issue is you have to probably work just as many hours, but in four days, and then you could burn out from working too many hours in those four days. Well, and, and, you know, in a world where, you know, people are telling us, especially, you know, women and, and other groups of people, you know, people are telling us that flexibility is most important, right? I think for me, if you tell me I have to get the same amount of work done in four days, that's that's actually a lot more restrictive than telling me, you know, you have seven days, figure it out. <laughs> you know, um, so I, I, you know, I, I do, I, I struggle with the, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's the pendulum swinging, all the way to one side, not that it's bad. And I think it could work in some organizations and some industries, but I don't know, like you said before, there's not a one size fits all answer here. Um, but for someone like me, I feel like a four day work week actually feels more restrictive as, and, and provides me with less, less flexibility and autonomy. And going back to transparency, one of the, one of the things that actually I think is really important, but people are just afraid to talk about how they're feeling. I mean, really, I mean, this is not rocket science. It's like, you know, if you're talking with your manager, you know, people feel that if they share how they're feeling, especially if it's, you know, let's say negative, I'm not feeling well, or, or I'm taking on too much work, they feel like that could hurt their career prospects. And I think that's one of the big reasons why people don't have these conversations. And in this study, we found that 33% of workers and 22% of the C-suite say that they always or often share information about their well-being with their managers. So it's, it's pretty rare. But I do think that I've talked to a lot of uh, executives over the past two years, and they compared to years before that, pre-COVID, they are now asking employees how they're feeling. As in like at the start of the call, they're like, how are you doing? And I don't think that happened ever before. (laughs) So at least we're heading in that direction, but it's still these conversations aren't being had. And I'll always remember, I don't know if you remember this, but there was uh, someone who asked their manager for a mental health day off because they weren't feeling well. And the manager said, yes, you know, you're setting a great example. Other people should ask for this. And it went viral. And I think it went viral because it that, like people were shocked that the man, that the employee would have the guts to ask for that mm-hmm. and that the manager would be so welcoming of it. Yeah. Yeah. Which it, it's kind of sad, but it also shows you that, Hey, this is important and, it's, it is happening more, but how do we make it okay and, and give people the comfort to talk about this? Yeah. I mean, I think that the the sentiment around it is is definitely changing. But I also, you know, I mean, it, 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 it um, 
Well, I just lost my train of thought on that. <laughs> I don't know where I was going. Um, okay, so I'll switch to something else. Um, so, Dan, you mentioned earlier, and we talk about this in, in the paper and in the survey, um, a, a health-savvy leader. So can you talk to me about what is a health-savvy leader? And if somebody doesn't feel like they're health-savvy and wants to become more health-savvy, what like what are... What can they do? Like, what are some actions to take to become more health savvy? I think one of the biggest things is setting boundaries. Like I had said previously, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, when do you shut off? When do you turn on? Those type of conversations are really critical to have, right? Because everyone's on the same page. People know when they can access you, when you might not respond to emails. And I remember I heard for so many of my friends in 2020, they're like, I'm like burned out and, you know, my CEO, it was a smaller company, they, you know, was emailing us at like nine o'clock on a Friday. And like, so I, I think having these boundaries and, and, you know, having those conversations are really critical. I think the other thing is blocking off time, mm. you know, so if it's Tuesday, block off, and I, I actually... I actually do this with my girlfriend. Like every morning we go from for a walk between like seven and eight in the morning. And that's kind of a routine. So it's getting, you know, taking accountability yourself, not just waiting for the, the C-suite to come up with some idea to, and even if you're in the C-suite, to block off time for your mental and physical health. So, you know, block off and out, you know, especially if you're working from home and you have a little bit more control of your schedule, block off time during the day when, you know, most of your workers or employees are free for meetings, just to be available for meetings, and then block off time for mental and physical health routines, such as going for a walk, a run, you know, bike, you know, uh, you know, taking your bike out or, or, or lunch with a friend. So I, I always said, it's like, if we put, our, if we say that our calendars kind of reflect who we are, and if it's not on our calendar, it doesn't exist, and we live and die by our calendars and all those phrases, then we need to reflect our well-being kind of goals and uh, you know personal activities on our calendar as well. So I think we need to, I think we need to create our calendar so it reflects personal and professional, and that it gives us the breaks we need to recharge. Because I remember there was a study in Fast Company I read years ago about how like for every, I think it's like. 40 minutes of work, you need a certain amount of time for a break. And so I think we need to get in the habit of taking more breaks and have leaders be okay with people taking breaks. And again, this goes back to good communication and a leader that's very empathetic and welcoming of those type of conversations. So I think going back to what you said before about, hey, let's talk about like leadership skills. I think that's a really key leadership skill. In fact, it's, you know, my, my last book, Back to Human, chapter nine was lead with empathy. And I think yeah. that's more of what we need to do because people have to be okay to have those conversations. And then they need a leader who kind of respects their situation. But all, at the same time, we don't want the pendulum to swing too far and people taking advantage of those situations either. Right. I mean, look, you know, you're <laughs> there's there's some realities to work, right? I mean, you're there to work and get work done, but I I you know, I I completely agree. And I think that, you know, to me a health savvy leader is one that you know, you were describing specific actions and things to do, but it's somebody that understands the impact of work on our health and well-being and the impact of, you know, 
bad work-related behaviors, right? And I love your example around our calendars kind of reflecting who we are because you can ask anybody on my team, you know, they have access to my calendar. I have breakfast, lunch, dinner, two snacks, workout time. You know, I'm a caregiver for my mother, so I put her doctor's appointments on my calendar. Um, I'm pretty transparent about those things and open about those things. I think everybody's going to have a different comfort level when it comes to that and kind of wanting, you know, you know, transparency into their calendar, but um, it does humanize us and, and give others. Um, and, and quite frankly, it gives me the permission because you're right. If it's not on my calendar, I, chances are I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I think the most humanizing part about the past two years, especially from a remote work perspective, is people now have a window to your home other life. people's lives, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which never, yeah. it never, it's not like people didn't work from home five years ago or anything, but it's, you know, in terms of where we are now with a, a higher percentage, I think people have a, a, a better sense. You hear a baby crying, you hear a dog, it kind of, you know, mm-hmm. it's something you wouldn't get if people were in the office. But one of the things that we found, going back to the study, is that the C-suite that are, you know, focusing on being health savvy have benefited. They, you know, it's made them a better leader. It's made them feel more connected to a bigger purpose. It's made their job more rewarding, you know, so there's been a lot more benefits than drawbacks. And, uh, and so I think that it it is becoming a priority. You know, the majority said it was a big priority and will continue to be. But I think that, uh, you know, the work, you know, if you don't get your health right, then you're just not going to be as productive. So we need to prioritize people focusing on well-being even before their own job because when they do, their job will be much better for them and everyone else. Everything, everything else, yeah. I mean, everything. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Maslow's. You know, and I talk about this as well. Is like if someone feels safe, secure, you know, they have strong relationships, they're going to perform better, right? So if you're healthy and you have a sense of security and you have good relationships with your team you're more likely to achieve your full potential at work. But if you don't have that, you won't. So why not unlock people's full potential by supporting their well-being or at least coaching them to be able to do that? Yeah, so let's dig into that, right? I mean, if people listening and probably most of the listeners to this podcast are are hopefully kind of vigorously shaking their heads yes to everything we've been saying, but if they're not convinced yet... (laughs) um, what like what are the consequences for leaders and their organizations if if they don't take you know if you have a leader that's like no nah, it's it's all good i you know everything's fine you know that disconnect between leaders and their workforce 91% of the c suite think they're doing a good job but their workforce doesn't feel the same so if we don't close that gap or if an organization doesn't close that gap what are what are the consequences this is where the real pain happens. It's harder to recruit and it's harder to retain. And those are really key metrics, especially from an HR perspective that matter. And over the past two years, we've seen that CEOs especially have prioritized um, talent management as being number one for what what they're focused on right now, right? Especially for the war for talent and everything that's kind of brewing in that respect. So if you don't do it, you lose talent. And with the world we live in that's more transparent and you have social media, word will get around that you don't support people's well-being. And then that hurts your ability to recruit top talent. So yeah, it definitely pays to do the right thing or at least to attempt to do the right thing in today's world. 
because it's just like what I think, like if we go deep into a recession and the C-suite wants everyone back into the office full time and people are really unhappy with that, well, the next year, you know, we could be in a good, healthy economy and they'll choose other employees to work for. So doing the right thing in the hardest times is going to be really important. And people remember that, you know, people write articles on that when employers do the right thing during hard mm-hmm. times. So I think, especially with the well-being and the world we live in with the, with COVID still kind of like a dark cloud above us. Uh, I think that doing the right thing as a leader, doing the right thing as an organization is what's going to really pay dividends. And we, we can, we'll say this forever, right? I mean, this is always going to be important because people remember it. You get positive, um, you get positive retention and it's going to be easier to recruit because people will say positive things about you and that will attract more candidates. Yeah. And ultimately your people are going to do better work, right? So it hits the bottom line of the organization in other ways too, right? (laughs) Yeah. I've talked to a lot of my entrepreneur friends and the saying that they have is, is uh, you can't grow a business if you're too busy replacing talent all the time. Oh, and I'm a complete believer in, in hybrid. And I think there are, our challenges to it. But I think that they are actually positive challenges that we can overcome. It just, it's going to require leaders to lead differently. Um, but it's I, not like we go to school and we learn how to manage a hybrid workplace. There's well, no like, we don't, we also don't go to school <laughs> and learn how to manage an all in office. Like this, right? <laughs> I mean, so I didn't learn that in school. So, <laughs> you know, so we all just kind of, I think we're, I think what we need to admit is that we don't know how to do it and we're learning. And I, again, I think that that, you know, that's where the, that's where leaders and the workforce can come together. Like, you know, hey, I, I don't know how to lead in, in in a hybrid environment, but like, help me, tell me what you need, tell me, you know, what's going to be useful to you. And, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, is is a vulnerable place for leaders to say, I don't know how to do something. Um, but, but, but the truth is, is, is we don't, you know, we're kind of figuring out what works. And to me, I think that's cool and exciting because I think that the opportunity to, you know, to change the way we work forever. I, I mean, I think it's here, right? We're doing it, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And I think we're going to be in the state of flux potentially forever. And so yeah. again, goes back to what I was saying with like adaptability, that being a skill, being able to adapt to different environments and lead and connect with different people is always yeah. going to be something foundation. It's like, my first job was I was, uh, you know, in my, as a teenager, I was uh, working as a caterer. And so I had to work mm-hmm. with all sorts of people. And I, I do always preach that, like, you know, working in a service job early on can be very helpful because the, the great skill of the world is being able to work with different people. Right. And, and that, 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 and that carries on into the workplace, regardless yeah. of where you are and what you do. Or what your status in an organization is. Absolutely. So Dan, last word on the survey, the study, or anything you want to leave our listeners with. Yeah, I think it's very hopeful, you know, regardless of this disconnect that we have been talking about for Mm -hmm. like an hour or or 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. I I think that it's on the agenda. It's something that people are, are, are becoming more conscious of. You can't hide from it anymore because it's affecting everyone, regardless of you know, your level within the organization. And I think that it's going to continue to become something that we all live with and work through. This is not something that Jed and I are solving tomorrow, right? Like, no, it's an ongoing conversation because the world is changing and we have to continually adapt and figure out what's going to work for each individual. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't get here overnight. So we're 
not going to solve it overnight, but I think that that's the opportunity to actually solve it um, for generations to come is an exciting one. So I agree with you. It's hopeful. Um, and Dan, thank you for the collaboration on the study and much more. And thanks for being on the podcast today. You got it. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful Dan could be with us today to talk about our survey findings in the report, The C-Suite's Role in Wellbeing. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. The information, opinions, and recommendations expressed by guests on this Deloitte podcast series are for general information and should not be considered as specific advice or services.